that Jesus Christ is Lord, a truth that we gather to confess and to proclaim this morning, a truth that we're invited to live by uh, all of our lives, a truth that the Scriptures call us to recognize time and time again. As you open your Bibles this morning to uh, the book of Revelation, I want to remind you uh, that this book's call, that this book calls its readers uh, and its hearers to overcome, to conquer, consistent theme, a consistent call throughout uh, this final portion of God's Word. If you're visiting with us, we've been in uh, the book of Revelation for a number of weeks now. We're in chapter 13 this morning. We'll continue on. We'll take a, a break in just a couple weeks for uh, the, uh, the leading up to, to Easter Sunday, and then we'll come back and we'll finish out this, this important uh, portion of, of God's Word. Uh, but a call to overcome, a call to conquer in other words, there's a message to be heard and there's a faith to be lived in the midst of a world that declares otherwise. And we live in a world that often, that most often declares otherwise. Paul's words to Timothy near the end of Paul's life capture this call. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. Long for Christ's appearing. In essence, church, that is the call to us through this portion of God's Word. So let's heed the call as we hear the Word once again. If you find your place in Revelation chapter 13, uh, let me invite you to join me standing, uh, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 13, and you can find this text on page 998 of the Pew Bible. I'll read the whole chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. John writes, he says, The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Verse 11, then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. 
The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Let's bow in prayer. Father, this morning we thank you for being with us. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that resides in us and your spirit that is working today to guide us into all truth. Father, we need you to guide us now. We need you to give us clarity. We need you to speak. We need you to to capture our attention and to direct us and to challenge us and to correct us and to encourage us by the truths of your word. So, Father, we pray that you would do so now. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What a text, right? In spending time in Revelation, we've come to expect such things. This highly uh, graphic language, this highly symbolic language, this apocalyptic literature that feels so foreign to us, yet a style that was used in John's day to communicate great and overarching truths of of God, to emphasize that God is sovereign, that His uh, timetable is uh, still uh, in His care, that He is good, uh, and that He is working all things toward His intended end. Mentioned, John mentions this dragon here in the opening of the chapter, a dragon that we were introduced to for the last couple weeks from chapter 12. We, we met this dragon and we were told who he is. He is the devil. And though he aims to destroy us, Christ has defeated him and will soon deliver us. That's a promise that is clearly communicated from the scriptures, is clearly communicated from the previous chapter. But the emphasis in the last chapter was on God's provision, that God protects his people for a season of time as they face persecution. Now, as we enter into chapter 13, the emphasis seems to lie more on our responsibility. A word of comfort and now a word of challenge. We are called, we're challenged to practice, verse 10, patient endurance and faithfulness in the midst of pressure and persecution. Though Satan prods us to worship worldly authorities, Christ calls us to faithfully uh, to follow him faithfully to the end. Though Satan prods us to, to worship worldly authorities, Christ calls us to follow him faithfully to the end. In summary form, I think that is the message for us from this chapter. Now we've got some stuff to navigate to get there, and so that's our aim this morning. But here in this text, we meet two beasts. The beast from the sea, verses 1 through 10, and the beast from the earth, or the false prophet, verses 11 through 18. And through the Bible's description of this first beast, the one from the sea, we learn that Satan works through secular authorities to oppose God's kingdom and solicit worship. Satan is alive, he's active, he's at work, he's opposing God. That's a clear truth from the scriptures. And we see here and elsewhere in the scriptures, I think, that Satan works through secular authorities to oppose God's kingdom and solicit worship. Now, the word antichrist uh, is, is not in this text. It doesn't appear in the book of Revelation. But this beast from the sea recalls John's uh, descriptions elsewhere of uh, antichrist, plural, uh, from his epistles, First John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Now, John wasn't mistaken in calling uh, the first century the last hour. This is the language that the Scriptures use to describe the period of time between Christ's two comings, between His first and second coming. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. First John chapter 4, verse 3, But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Second John, verse 7, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh uh, have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. As you likely know, uh, there have been uh, numerous individuals who have been suggested uh, as being likely prospects for being the Antichrist throughout church history. And if we're thinking in terms of a single final worldwide Antichrist figure, then of course every one of those suggestions has been wrong, for here we are today. Christ has not returned yet for his people. There is a tendency to read this text strictly as predictive prophecy. In other words, uh, the message here becomes about a single future Antichrist and the false prophet uh, who serves Satan by luring the masses to worship a worldwide political leader rather than to worship God himself. Now, there's some merit to reading the text that way. Scripture emphasizes similar truths elsewhere. Revelation does imply an intensification of persecution and tribulation and opposition to the church prior to the Lord's return. But I want to caution us this morning against reading this text solely that way. You see, Antichrist means one who is against Christ or one who is in the place of Christ. And as we've already seen, John indicates that there are many Antichrists throughout the church age. It certainly doesn't eliminate the possibility of a final, ultimate Antichrist figure. But to put all our eggs in that basket, so to speak, is to miss some of the weightiness of this text for Christians in every single age. And when we consider the contextual background from which John is writing, and that's important for us every time we open the Scriptures, we want to know something about the writer and the circumstances, the historical situation, the message that's being conveyed. When you consider all of those things here, it becomes clear that he is almost certainly equating the beast from the sea with Roman imperial power that is concentrated in the emperor. To begin with, the beast comes from the sea. Just as Rome's representatives always came to Asia Minor, John's original audience from the sea, appearing to emerge slowly from the depths as the ships approached. Furthermore, uh, John is likely referring to a popular myth in the first century about the resurrection of one of their emperors, the emperor Nero. You've likely heard of Nero. Nero was the one who's been uh, uh, the one who, who is responsible for taking both Paul and, and Peter's lives and the lives of many uh, believers, blaming Christians for a fire that broke out in Rome in the first century. Rome, uh, Nero was a, a fierce persecutor of believers during a portion of his reign, but he died in AD 68. He took his own life. But as was the case with Elvis Presley in uh, the late 1970s, many believed that he escaped alive, that he was still alive. 
even in John's day, that he was still alive and that he fled somewhere and that he was mustering up an army to come back and to take over the empire. You see, after Nero's death, chaos ensued and peace diminished in the empire with several candidates soon vying for the throne. It was an uncertain time for the Roman Empire. Even so, eventually stability was reestablished under Vespasian, Domitian's father, and the empire had, in the words of one scholar, for all practical purposes, returned from the brink of death. John writes, verse 3, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And furthermore, most scholars see in the number 666 a subtle reference to Nero through the ancient technique of gematria, where letters were used to designate numbers. Not a practice that we do in our day, in our language, but a practice that was popular in both Hebrew and Greek. And when Nero Caesar is transliterated from Greek into Hebrew, the letters add up to 666. All that to say, the vast majority of Evangelical New Testament scholars today understand John to reference imperial Rome here, at least in some sense. And as we've noted before, during the writing of Revelation, the imperial cult, that is the worship of the emperor, was at its height with Domitian expecting his subjects to address him as both my Lord and my God. Now, what are you saying here? That's a lot of history. What do you you intend by this? Here's what I'm saying. There is both a past and a future component of Satan's work through the beasts. He did work through wicked kings and empires in John's day, and he will again in a final era before the return of Jesus Christ. If he did, and if he will, then most certainly he still does. In other words, there is a past and a present and a future component to this message of the dragon and the beast, which of course makes sense theologically, because Satan's aim does not change. For as long as he can, church, he works through secular authorities to oppose God's kingdom and to solicit worship. He works diligently and deceptively to lure the world to worship counterfeit gods, anything other than the one true living God. In the words of one commentator, the number of the beast serves as the parable nearest at hand for the unimaginable forms that historical evil will assume the nearer we approach the end. The idea is like John the Baptist is described as another Elijah. So there will be numerous antichrists, perhaps including a final climactic antichrist that will be like Nero, puppets of the devil himself. So here's what I mean. Any secular authority who opposes the kingdom of Christ and oppresses the people of Christ is one of numerous antichrists. Be it Nero or Domitian or Napoleon, or Hitler, or Stalin, or Castro, or Mao Zedong, or Saddam Hussein, or Osama bin Laden, or Xi Jinping, or Kim Jong-un, or anyone else who opposes the worship of Jesus Christ. And the beast, if this beast coming out of the sea suggests that Satan works through such leaders and such governments, such authorities, through secular authorities to oppose Christ's kingdom and to solicit worship, then the beast coming out of the earth suggests that Satan also works through spiritual authorities to oppose God's kingdom and solicit worship. Works through spiritual authorities to oppose God's kingdom and to solicit worship. The beast from the earth, verse 11, a.k.a. the false prophet, likely its original setting represented local priests in Asia Minor during John's day who encouraged cultic devotion to Rome. 
through the magic arts and fake miracles, these religious uh, leaders and figures urged all to devote themselves fully to Rome. And if they did, there were economic advantages. If they didn't, there were likely economic disadvantages. See, in just a few days, the SEC men's basketball uh, tournament begins. And if I said to you, uh, hey, cheer for my team, you'd probably say, uh, yeah, right, I've got my own team to cheer for. But if I said to you, hey, cheer for my team and I'll take you out and buy your dinner, you might say, okay, uh, I'll cheer for your team except when they're playing against my team. But if I said something like, cheer for my team, no, for the whole tournament, I'll buy you a new car then you would probably respond, okay, I'm a Razorbacks fan for the week. Suzanne's saying no. Arnold Mooney said he still wouldn't after the first service. But I bet you most of you would be willing to do that for a few days for something like that. You see, money is a strong motivator. Mark of the Beast, verse 17, that prohibits buying and selling recalls the economic pressure put on Christians living in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 9. And throughout the empire for their unwillingness to participate, to compromise, to participate in various cultic festivals or in the worship of the king. Now church, if this is a right reading of Revelation, and that's debatable, but I think it is, then this earth beast represents every religious figure throughout church history that has encouraged the worship of false gods. Be they tyrants or governments or celebrities or faulty imaginary creations of the true and living God. You see, Satan is crafty, making every aim and using every tool throughout every generation to encourage devotion to something, anything other than the God that's revealed in his word. At the end of the first century, it was the temptation to compromise, the temptation to tolerate false teachers and teaching within the church, the temptation to continue engaging in immorality, to to bow before Caesar, all the while claiming allegiance to Jesus Christ. In our own day, the temptation may be to cling to Christ's compassion, yet overlook his call for repentance. Or to discredit portions of the Bible as dated and misunderstood. Or to embrace those who teach multiple paths to God. Or to buy into a false narrative that proclaims a prosperity gospel. Or to exalt the flag above the cross. Or to equate Christianity with a particular political party. Friends, these are lies of the devil in our own day. His attempts through instruments and agents to lure us into loving uh, this world, things of this world, more than loving Jesus himself. And so like Christians in every age, we must flee from any love that rivals our love for him. Flee from any love that rivals your love for Jesus Christ. You see, if Jesus is not Numero uno in your life, you are practicing idolatry. If Jesus is not first in my life, I'm practicing idolatry. Satan's aim is to get us to practice idolatry, to deny the supreme position of the Son of God, whether in word or in deed. Same Son of God who said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own lives, such a person cannot be my disciple. It's a tough message to hear. What Jesus meant by that is that our love for Him must be greater than any other love, even our, our love for our family. So friends, when political persuasions or ties overshadow our devotion to Christ, we have bought the lie of the false prophet and we are worshiping the beast. When nationalism or patriotism supersedes our commitment to evangelizing the lost of every nation, tribe, people, and language, we are worshiping 
the beast. When our denominational affiliations or persuasions eliminate our willingness to engage in Christian fellowship with brothers and sisters from various Christian faith traditions, we are worshiping the beast. When our Christian faith elevates any leader, pope, priest, or pastor to an equal or greater footing than these ancient words of God preserved in a two testament canon, then we are worshiping the beast. When we intentionally ignore what the Bible says about a particular sin issue, any sin issue, and act as if God was wrong on that one, then we are worshiping Satan's beast. You see, the pages of this apocalyptic vision shout to us, worship God alone. Follow Christ Jesus alone. Trust Him alone to save you and secure you and provide for all of your needs. Christ is sufficient. Christ is Savior. Christ is sovereign. And church, Satan knows this. He knows this. He knows that he is ultimately no match for Jesus. And so he imitates Jesus in an effort to lure the people of the world into serving him instead of Jesus. Satan aims to imitate Christ, but is a poor substitute for Christ. He aims to imitate Christ, but he is a poor substitute for Christ. You see, like a knockoff pair of Oakley sunglasses. John portrays Satan here as a cheap imitation of the real thing. What do we mean by that? Well, verse 1, the sea beast wears crowns claiming the kingship that belongs to Jesus Christ alone. Verse 2, Satan gave the beast his power and kingdom and authority, imitating the power and the kingdom and the authority God shares with Jesus Christ. Chapter 12, verse 10. Verse 3, the sea beast is wounded before coming back to life, just as the lamb was wounded, same word, in chapter 5, verse 6, before coming back to life. The whole world, verse 7, every tribe, people, language, and nation worships the beast, a parody of the multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, worshiping God and the lamb from chapter 7. Even asking the question, verse 4, who is like the beast? Who can compare with the beast? A clear allusion to numerous Old Testament texts that pose the same question. Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? Furthermore, the earth beast, verse 11, has two horns like a lamb. Poor substitute for the true lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of God's throne. He works signs. He aims to show the divinity of the sea beast. Verses 13 and 14, just as Jesus worked signs in John chapter 20, verse 30, pointing to his own divinity. In the words of one theologian on this, John intends by all this a rather straightforward message. The two beasts and the dragon on one side and God and the lamb on the other side make the same totalistic claims. No one, therefore, can legitimately worship both at the same time. The words of Eugene Peterson, the unholy trinity of the red dragon, beast from the sea and beast of the earth, is a clumsy counterfeit of the magnificent true lamb. Satan aims to imitate Jesus Christ, but is a poor substitute for Christ. So let's not be misled into exalting anything or anyone other than the triumphant and exalted Jesus Christ who paid the price of our salvation and defeated Satan, sin, and death for us. There is no one who compares with this one, so let's cherish knowing Him. Cherish knowing Jesus Christ. Cherish knowing Him. Cherish knowing Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you know the real Jesus? Why settle for an imitation when you can have the real thing? Jesus is the real thing. He is the fullness of God in human flesh. 
He is the one who even now rules and reigns on high, the one who forgives uh, us our sins, the one who gives us his righteousness, the one who represents us before the Father, the one who releases us from our bondage to sin, the one who relegates the responsibility of taking his name to the ends of the earth to us, and the one who will soon return and banish Satan forever and ever and ever, yet gather all believers to know God fully and enjoy him deeply forever and ever and ever. Do you know this one? Do you know Jesus the Christ? Cherish knowing Christ. He desires for you to know Him and He calls you to walk by faith in Him, to live in relationship with Him. Cherish knowing Him. To cherish knowing Jesus is to find joy and satisfaction and delight in living in relationship with Him. Christ invites us to to know Him and to live in relationship with Him. But He is clear and the Scriptures are clear that it won't be an easy path. You see, as long as we are here, as long as we are living in this world, as long as we are in this life, as long as we remain here, we must accept the cost of discipleship. Called to accept the cost of discipleship, to accept the cost of following after Jesus Christ. There is an earthly cost to following Christ, but even so, friends, the scriptures are consistent in declaring it is worth it. It is worth it. John says in verse 9, whoever has ears, let them hear. He says, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. John says following Christ results in opposition, even martyrdom oftentimes. But the apparent defeat of Christ's people by Satan and his beasts, verse 7, is in fact not what it seems. For by remaining faithful to Jesus, even unto death, we reveal the genuineness of our faith, showing ourselves to be the real victors. The beast can kill Christians, but he cannot suppress their witness to the truth. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, my life is not my own. The cost of discipleship is the cost of following Jesus Christ. It is the cost of standing with him. It is the cost of identifying with him. It is the cost of submitting to him and witnessing for him. And however that cost plays out in your life, brother or sister, the scriptures shout, it is worth it to know Christ and to be counted among his people. Friends, though Satan prods us to worship worldly authorities, Christ calls us to follow him faithfully to the end. So let's cherish knowing Christ. Let's cherish knowing Christ. Let's accept the cost of following him and let's patiently endure by looking at Christ's victory on the cross. Let's patiently endure. Let's patiently endure. Let's navigate this life. Let's live this life faithfully by looking at Christ's victory on the cross. The key to our faithfulness resides in the central image of our faith. The cross You see, if we take our eyes off the cross, we will compromise. If we neglect the necessity and the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ, we succumb to heresy. But when we look to the cross, our eyes gaze beyond this earthly life into the wonder and the beauty of eternity with Jesus, a perspective that celebrates Christ's victory for us, his victory even over death itself. Friend, I don't know where you are spiritually this morning, I don't know where you stand before God, but I know there is a devil who makes it his every aim to distract and to deceive you into doing and worshiping anything other than Jesus Christ. I encourage you to bow before Christ. 
live your life for the glory of Jesus Christ. The devil makes it his aim to get you and me to worship some fake, some counterfeit God, be it money or pleasure or status or comfort or politics or sports or success. Let's not buy his lies. Let's not buy the lies of the devil. Let's follow Christ faithfully here and now and until he comes again. See, John says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Father, help us to that end. Lord, help your people to be faithful. Lord, help us to find our significance and our position and our joy, our satisfaction, our delight in knowing that we are yours. Lord, in walking with you and trusting you and and worshiping you. Lord, overwhelm us with the beauty and the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be so devoted to you. May we be so in love with you that, that we remain faithful despite pressure to compromise. Lord, give us wisdom. Guide us by the presence and power of your spirit to live our lives for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.